Hello and welcome to this week's edition of Worcester Talking News, brought to you by Worcester News and Equipment for the Blind, with the permission of the Worcester News, and recorded on Thursday, August the 8th, 2019, here at Colin Chance House, Worcester. I'm Evelyn Brock, editor for this edition, and with me to read the articles are Moira Lowe and Julian Watkins. Our sound engineer is Barry Hurd. A warm welcome to all listeners, especially new ones. I hope everyone enjoys our offering. In addition to news items, you'll hear some useful telephone numbers, readers' letters, birthdays, on this day and thought for the week. Obituaries are still included, but following listeners' requests, these have moved to a new spot following the closing music. So if you wish to hear them, please stay tuned then. Don't forget that recordings are also available on podcast. I've also been asked to tell you that at present, talking books are not available on memory sticks only on CDs and tape. Also, do let us know your birthdays so that we can greet you specially when the time comes. This service is free to users, but if you would like to make a voluntary donation, it can be sent to Colin Chance House, Wilds Lane, Worcester WR5 1DA. We do like hearing from you, and a message can be left on our answer phone, Worcester, that's 01905 767 or add a note to your wallet. We ask listeners that if there's any problem with any aspect of your receiving these recordings, please use the answer phone on the number I've just given and leave a message to that effect. Well, this would be the spot for birthdays this week, but unfortunately we have no record of any birthdays for this particular week. Now I'll ask Moira to read Thought for the Week. This is Mark 9, verses 34 and 35. They came to Capernaum. When he was in the house, he asked them, What were you arguing about on the road? But they kept quiet, because on the way they'd argued about who was the greatest. Sitting down, Jesus called the twelve and said, Anyone who wants to be first must be the very last and the servant of all. Thank you, Moira. Now those useful telephone numbers. Out of hours medical help, 6 to 8 p.m. 0300 NHS non-emergency, 111. Worcester Live, that's Swan Theatre, Huntingdon Hall and Henry Sandon Hall, Worcester, 611427. Malvern Theatre, 01684 89 
Worcester Hub for Council Matters, Worcester 01905 765 765 or 72233. Crime Stoppers, 0800-555-1. And lastly, Samaritans, 116123. And that is a free phone number. Well, now I'll ask the team to introduce themselves as they read the week's headline articles. I have the first one. It's from Friday, August the 2nd, 2019. The headline is Not on my doorstep. Hannah Seven tells off dog owners who leave vile poo outside her home. A seven-year-old girl has made a video to tell off people who constantly allow their dogs to foul outside her home. Hannah Clissett hopes to embarrass antisocial dog owners into picking up their pet's mess after her little sister has stepped in dog poo several times. She created an anti-dog foul video and made a poster which she has pinned to her front gate to warn dog owners not to leave mess on the pavement. Mum Rebecca Clissett says dog fouling has become a big problem outside the family home in Larn Road, St John's, Worcester. Mrs Clissett, aged 40, said, My daughter is really upset about it, and she's concerned about people treading in the mess. My three-year-old, Zoe, has stepped in it a few times. She hasn't got great eyesight. She has to wear glasses, so if she walks ahead of us, she treads in it. Hannah wants to raise awareness of the problem and take positive action. She loves a good cause. She was her science ambassador at school this year. I think she got the idea because they did environmental posters at school. People have been stopping to read the sign. Hopefully it will embarrass the people who keep allowing their dogs to foul outside our house. There is a bin nearby. It's not specifically for dog fouling, but people use it for disposing their dog's mess. So there's no excuse, really. Mrs Clissett is campaigning for signs to be placed around the area, warning dog owners to pick up their pet's waste. Mrs Clissett says that the family had even considered installing a CCTV system at their home. She added, It's just the lack of respect outside our property. Ultimately, we live in the same community. They wouldn't allow this to happen outside their house. This week we've had the same dog foul twice either side of the gate, which is the main entry point to our house. I will keep more of an eye out, as this is happening quite frequently now. Obviously there's a bad smell too, so when the children walk in it and bring it into the house, it's difficult to clean up. It's not hygienic. A city council <clears throat> spokesman said... Worcester City Council always encourages dog owners to act responsibly and we have the power to issue fines of £70 to those who do not clean up after their pets. 
dog owners who do not pay could be taken to court and fined up to £1,000. We received a report about dog fouling in Larn Road and one of our street cleansing team will ensure it is cleared away today. We will consider installing signs in the area to warn dog owners that they could be fined. We will also consider a dedicated dog bin. However, there are several litter bins in Larn Road and the surrounding area where bagged dog waste can be disposed of. Residents can help us to identify offenders by reporting dog fouling incidents at worcester.gov.uk slash report hyphen it. Let us have the date, time and location of the offence and any information on the identity of the irresponsible dog owner and we will aim to take action against them. Hi, this is Jules and my story is my Aldi alcohol argument. A mum says she was left embarrassed after a supermarket cashier refused to sell her alcohol because her teenage daughter was with her. Sue Manson was doing her weekly shop in Aldi when she claims a cashier refused to sell her gin ice pops and cocktail ingredients because her 15-year-old daughter was with her. Ms Manson said, They are basically saying that no parent with children can buy a drink. I can't see how that can be possible. Surely this is not right. I feel very embarrassed, as does my poor daughter, that they are implying I would give my 15-year-old daughter alcohol. I just felt stupid and they were accusing me of being a bad parent. Miss Manton said she spent an hour in the St John's store because staff refused to sell her the alcohol which she was buying for a party with her school mum friends. Miss Manton from St John's in Worcester claims the cashier told her the law allows them to refuse customers alcohol if they have a minor with them. An oldie spokesman said, We operate a Challenge 25 policy at all of our stores and staff can apply this if they think alcohol may be passed to somebody underage. <coughs> we apologise to Miss Manton for any inconvenience caused. Miss Manton added, Upon checking out, the cashier questioned my daughter's age and asked for ID. She's 15. Then they refused to sell me alcohol. I explained that the alcohol was for me and that my daughter always comes with me as I don't want to leave her home alone. They said that they thought I was buying the alcohol for her. They then said they would serve me if she was not with me. <laughs> so she went to the car and I returned to the back of the queue, which was massive, only to be told half an hour later that I still couldn't buy it as they had previously refused to serve me. <laughs> I was being argumentative, which is unlike me. It was quite a long argument. Eventually, they let me buy the alcohol. The 52-year-old says her daughter is very quiet and shy and says the argument has knocked her confidence. Ms Manton says she shops frequently at Aldi, but she no longer wants to shop there again. Hi, this is Moira. My headline is Thief Caught in City Chase. A homeless man who stole a bicycle and fled police was found to also be carrying cannabis. Martin Sigley stole the pedal cycle and lock from the rack outside Fourgate Street Station and was tracked down several days later by police. The 27-year-old, who began living in a tent after breaking up with his partner and leaving their home, was identified on CCTV committing the theft before being recognised by an officer in the city centre. Prosecutor Riaz said a police community support officer who knows the defendant saw him 12 days after the theft and was forced to undertake a short foot chase. He then found a small amount of cannabis in Sigley's pocket after detaining him on July the 18th.
Michael Mooney had reported his bicycle, valued at £230, missing on July the 6th at around 3.30pm after locking it up earlier in the day. Officers then viewed station CCTV, which showed Sigley stealing the bike at 1.57pm that day. Samantha Lambsdale, defending, said over the last few months, Sigley and his partner have had significant difficulties, which led him to leave the address in Tolodyne Road, Worcester, they share. However, they have now reconciled, but he still stays in the tent several nights a week, she added. The solicitor went on to say her client had previously lived at St Paul's Hostel but was thrown out due to rent arrears. The sentence was deferred until January 2020 to coincide with other charges being heard then. Prior to Thursday's hearing, the defendant had appeared in Magistrates Court on July 5th in relation to a shop theft charge which was also deferred until January. Mr Riaz explained this was because he had a number of older offences, many dating back to 2017, which are also being heard then. Sigley has previously been to prison for a driving offence and on release missed some of the post-sentencing meetings with probation. Right, it's Evelyn again and this is from Tuesday, August the 6th and the headline is Homeless Hostel Quotes busiest in six years, close quotes. And it's illustrated by a picture of Jonathan Sutton, who is the chief executive of St Paul's Hostel in Worcester. If it wasn't for St Paul's, I would be dead on the street. Those are the words of a man living at a Worcester homeless hostel, as its boss said, they are experiencing extraordinary levels of demand for beds. Jonathan Sutton, CEO of St Paul's in Tallow Hill, said the hostel is running at around 95% capacity every night, meaning there are just two or three beds free, and that any sudden surge in demand would be impossible to meet. St Paul's has 48 beds in its hostel and two flats and 16 beds in move-on houses. And Mr Sutton said, there has never been such a demand for help during his time in charge as there is now. St Paul's has never been this busy in my six years, said the former army officer. Homelessness goes through ups and downs, and we have not seen levels of rough sleeping like this since the early 2000s, before the Labour government threw lots of money at the issue. The last official count of rough sleepers in Worcester at the end of last year showed the number of people sleeping on the streets had doubled in a year. There was a rise from 12 to 14 between 2017 and 2018. Mr Sutton said that there are many reasons why there has been a rise in the number of homeless people, including delays in universal credit payments, the wide availability of cheap alcohol and drugs, mental health issues and family breakdowns. At St Paul's, the team focus on addressing the Adverse Childhood Experiences, ACEs, such as emotional neglect, living with the loss of a parent and sexual abuse, 
of residents which have compelled them to turn to drink and drugs in the hope of breaking that cycle of addiction. Worcester News reporter Stephen Collins sat in on this Monday morning staff handover at St Paul's and during his time at the hostel found there was an overwhelmingly positive atmosphere. There has been a 58% reduction in the number of police visits to the hostel between 2011 and 2018 for issues of petty crime and a 94% reduction in residents having to leave the hostel as a last resort. Mr Sutton said, One resident we gave so many chances to, and asking someone to leave is the very last resort, but this person was asked to leave by the residents' committee. It really is their place. One resident, a man who asked not to be named, said, if it wasn't for St Paul's, I would be dead on the street. It's as simple as that. St Paul's housing manager, Amanda McKindley, 56, said, Since Jonathan has taken over, there have been big changes and he has now got the right staff. I said to him, I'll give it six months and then I'm leaving if things don't change. And they did and now it's a pleasure to come to work. There's a lot of stigma around homelessness. People might just tell them to get a job, but it isn't as simple as that. St Paul's chef, Greg Dobson, 41, has previously worked in a Michelin-starred restaurant in Cornwall and now runs cooking classes as well as preparing food on a limited budget. He said, We have a daily budget of just £2 per day for each resident and each resident has three meals if they choose. It's difficult, but we have help from Fair Share, who provide discounted supermarket produce to help us. My aim is to get residents that want to learn to cook, to make them independent when they move on, and, if they want, into cooking as a career. Mr Dobson said he actually has to turn food away as there is limited storage on site and wishes to thank the community for their offering of food. Residents cannot stay at the hostel rent-free but pay just £36 a week to cover water, food and other costs. Debbie Collins, who is employed as the accountant but also provides holistic therapy, said... Negative thoughts tend to define people, and I teach them how to let go, to acknowledge them as a passive observer. Hi, this is Jules, and my headline is Jilted Lover Smashed Up Ex-Cars with a Rake. A jilted boyfriend smashed up his ex-car, ex's car with a garden rake, bombarded her with more than a 100 phone calls and threatened to kill himself. Billy Watts used the rake to smash the windows of his former partner's Vauxhall Corsa and harassed her with phone calls, at one point hiding behind a hedge and jumping out to confront her outside of Worcester School because he was angry she had dumped him. The 23-year-old of Cleve Drive, Worcester, admitted harassment without violence and criminal damage, which placed him in breach of a suspended sentence imposed for battery and possession of an offensive weapon. Timothy Sapwell, prosecuting, described how Watts had been in an 18-month relationship with the victim and they had a daughter together, but that they had argued over the money he was spending on cannabis. On June 16th last year, 
she decided she'd had enough and called an end to their relationship over the phone. Watts threatened to attend her home address. Twenty minutes later he did so, banging on the door and kicking it, said Mr Sapwell. Although he did not get in, Inside, Mr. Sapple described how Watts found a large garden rake and smashed the rear window and rear passenger window of the Corsa, then ran away. In total, he caused £300 of damage. Watts then bombarded her with 100 calls which she did not answer. The calls came from a number she did not recognise. However, they were matched to the defendant's phone when it was seized upon his arrest. There were messages mostly pleading with her to try and make contact but also threats that he would kill himself and also abuse. He had deleted those from his core history prior to being arrested, said Mr Sapwell. On June the 20th, Watts arrived at a Worcester school, and when his ex returned to her car to get her phone, he appeared beside her and spoke to her. She screamed and ran back to the school, with a witness saying he'd been hiding in a hedge looking for her and someone beforehand. He was there for about ten minutes or so, while she was unaware of that, said Mr Sapwell. His former partner had been to the doctors for depression and he'd been placed on medication, the court heard. The suspended sentence of which Watch was in breach was imposed at Oxford Crown Court in October 31st, 2017, a six-month prison sentence suspended for 18 months for battery in possession of an offensive weapon. The offence itself took place on September 9th, 2017 in a club in Whitney, Oxfordshire, when he got into an argument with a group of revellers. However, because of an earlier breach of the the, um, operational period of the extended sentence was extended to two years on the 25th of January this year, Jason Patel, defending, said, Watts had received a call saying the relationship was over with no explanation, which is why he attended her address. There was no conversation in that regard and his frustration was taken out against the vehicle, he said. Mr Patel said Watts had a supportive mother and stepfather and was working full-time, which he had brought a positive change in his attitude. Mr Patel also said the probation report was refreshing and Watts had been completely honest with the probation officer. Watts had also dramatically reduced his intake of cannabis and accepted his relationship was over. Judge Nicholas Cartwright said no violence had been used towards the defender's ex-partner and that there were exceptional circumstances which justified not activating the suspended sentence in whole or part. He added 21 hours of unpaid work to mark the breach of the suspended sentence. These will be added to the 14 he is still to complete. Rest assured that if you fail to comply with the existing hours and the additional 21, you will be breached, and I very much doubt that any court will give you yet a second chance, said Judge Cartwright. He further ordered Watts to to pay his ex-partner £300 compensation for the damage to her car within 28 days. For the harassment, he ordered Watts to pay a further £400 compensation. He must pay that within 56 days. He also imposed a two-year community order with a requirement that Watts completed the Building Better Relationships Programme and 40 rehabilitation activity days. Watts must also pay £340 court costs. The judge also imposed a three-year restraining order which prevents him from having contact with his ex other than through solicitors or an agreed third party for the purpose of child contact. Watts is banned from entering Brickfields Road and Peterborough Close, Worcester. A bomb disposal team was called to a city road after a raid at a home. Residents were evacuated from Tunnel Hill and Troutbeck Drive, while police said they were trying to make some items safe. Members of the bomb squad searched the home in Tunnel Hill, which leads into Troutbeck Drive, at around 10am yesterday morning. Police said they arrested three people during the raid. Inspector Andrew Holliday said... 
Officers have carried out a search at an address in the Tunnel Hill area of Worcester under the power from a firearms warrant. During the search of the premises, a number of items were found and seized by officers and three persons were arrested. I would like to reassure the public that despite safety measures of the road closures for a short period of time, there is and has been no risk to the general public and no ongoing restrictions are now in place in this area. Yesterday, residents were moved to areas of safety, while around six police officers searched the home for around an hour and a half. At one point, a member of the bomb disposal team emerged carrying a large green bag. The bomb disposal team started to leave at around 12.35pm while police continued to search at the home. Sergeant Stuart Allen of West Mercia Police said, There's a police incident here in Tunnel Hill that has resulted in the Royal Logistical Corps being contacted to make safe some items of concern and provide public reassurance. Some residents have been moved to areas of safety while this completed, but there was nothing to raise the level of concern any further. Joe Price was driving along Troutbeck Drive at around 10am when she saw a woman being handcuffed and put into the back of a police van. She noted the bomb disposal van, so she came back with her old English bulldog Matilda to take a look. Miss Price, aged 34, of Brickfields Road said, It's not the sort of thing you expect to see in Worcester, a bomb disposal van. Apparently a house was raided at about 6am this morning. She added, It's a bit concerning. My ex-partner doesn't live far from there and I have a friend who lives four doors down. Kevin Cottrell, aged 46, said, It just seems a bit over the top for something that looks quite mediocre. I wouldn't have thought that anyone who'd want to do any harm would live around here. We've never seen anything like this around here before, so it's a bit shocking, but I'm sure it's all a big misunderstanding. And now some sport. First of all, Worcester Warriors. Former Warrior calls for club to clarify Duncan future. And the heading is State of Limbo. Mm -hmm. Head coach Rory Duncan and Worcester Warriors find themselves in a state of limbo which is not good for anyone. That's the view of ex-Warriors flanker Carl Cowan, pictured in the article, who has urged the club to clarify Duncan's future as soon as possible. Duncan is understood to have one year left on his current contract but Warriors have allowed the South African to speak to other clubs and do not envisage him being part of their future plans. Kerwan described Warriors' statement, which came after it was confirmed Duncan was in the running to become Southern King's new head coach, as very strange. Duncan has reportedly withdrawn from the race, and is understood to be working at six ways ahead of the 2019-20 season. But Warriors are refusing to make any further comment on the situation, a stance Kowan believes is only adding to uncertainty among players. This is pretty standard Worcester, as there's always some confusion within the club, said Kowan, who ended his four-year stay at Warriors this summer but it's a bit of a weird one. I thought he did all right last year. He seemed to settle in reasonably quickly, and I think everyone thought he was going to keep climbing within the club. 
but unfortunately that hasn't been the case. Duncan was interviewed for the King's Vacancy last month, along with Samoa boss Steve Jackson, ex-South Africa chief Peter de Villiers and Cheetahs coach Corniel Van Ziel. Warriors then cast doubt over Duncan's future when they issued a statement on July the 15th, which all but ruled the 42-year-old out of their long-term plans. It's a very strange situation, especially with the timing of that statement, Kirwan said. You would think they would try to keep that to themselves a little bit more, but obviously there have been some other ideas within the club. Kirwan said he had spoken to a couple of players at Warriors, including Locke Michael Fatialofa, who told him it was a bit uncertain around the forwards coach. It's always going to be tough for a player, said Kiwan, who has joined national one-side Chinor following his Warriors exit. You get used to a certain style of coaching and their ideas. Particularly with Rory, it was the line-outs which are a huge part of the game. You get used to that way, to that calling structure and the way you want to play so you can all get on one hymn sheet. If he's no longer involved anymore, I don't know who takes over that role. With less than two months to go before Warriors return to competitive action, Kirwan emphasised the importance of clarifying Duncan's place at the club. They have got to get it sorted quickly, one way or another, Kirwan added. They have either got to keep him on for the season and let the club settle down again, or they have got to go the other way and get someone else in and start moving forward. Just sitting in limbo is not good for anyone. A pitch invader who offered the match official a pair of glasses following a contentious penalty decision is set to receive a lifetime ban from Kidderminster Harriers. The club released a statement saying they were extremely disappointed by the incident that took place in the first half of Saturday's 2-2 home draw with Leamington in National League North. Harriers also urged a smallest minority of fans who are intent on spoiling the enjoyment of others to stay away from Agborough. Home fans were up in arms when referee Christian Silcock pointed to the spot after Josh March was adjudged to have been brought down in the box. After March dispatched the penalty in the 40th minute, a spectator entered the field and presented Silcock with a pair of glasses. The spectator was then ushered away by a steward. A statement from the club read, Kidderminster Harriers are extremely disappointed with scenes that saw a supporter enter the field of play during Saturday's fixture with Leamington. The club, as it does routinely, made clear online in its match day programme and over the public address system on Saturday its position on antisocial behaviour at matches. Such behaviour leads to action being taken against the club by the game's governing bodies in the form of warnings and in some cases heavy fines. Therefore, the club with this in mind plans to issue a lifetime ban from all club facilities to one individual in the wake of Saturday's game after consultation with police. We will not give the individual the satisfaction of notoriety by commenting on the incident further. 
The club will not hesitate to take similar action again in the future and would urge the smallest minority of fans who are intent on spoiling the enjoyment of others to stay away from Agbara Stadium for good. Silcott went on to brandish Leamington's Jack Edwards with a red card following his high tackle on Cliff Moyo in the closing nine minutes. But the visitors snatched a draw five minutes from time when substitute Cayman Anderson netted. Harry's second game of the season follows quickly tonight, so I don't know when that was, I'm afraid. Um, I think it might have taken place. Mm -hmm. But there is a a picture of the um, fan giving his glasses to the referee. Oh. So. Thank you. Nice pair of glasses, actually. Yeah. (laughs) Not nice behaviour, though. No. Right, now we go on to On This Day. This is... Uh, a list of famous events that took place on today, the um, 8th of August in previous years. The first 8th of August is 117. Hadrian became Emperor of Rome. Mm-hmm. 1834, what a leap in history, the Poor Law Amendment Act was passed, abandoning the system of outdoor relief by which parishes looked after their poor and replacing it with the workhouse. Mm -hmm. 1876, Frank Richards, author and creator of Fat Schoolboy Billy Bunter, was born in London as Charles Hamilton. I can't help wondering whether his first words were, I say, you chaps. (laughs) 1900. The Davis Cup for tennis was contested for the first time at Brooklyn, Massachusetts, and won by the USA. On this day, 1940, the Battle of Britain began. On this day, 1958, Columbia Records signed up a 17-year-old singer called Cliff Richard. 1963, the Great Train Robbery took place at Sears Crossing, Buckinghamshire, when a gang of 15 men, including Ronnie Biggs and Buster Edwards, stole more than 2.6 million a large enough amount nowadays, but then astronomical. 1974, Richard Nixon announced his resignation as US president, the first to do so because of his implication in the Watergate scandal. On this day, 1991, hostage John McCarthy came home five years and three months after being kidnapped and held hostage in Beirut. On this day, 2008, the opening ceremony of the Olympics took place in Beijing at the Bird's Nest Stadium. Right, after that trip down memory lane, we're now going to present some of the letters from the letters pages during the past week. So I'll ask Jules to start us off. <clears throat> yes, my letter is from <clears throat> L. Presley from Worcester and entitled, My Standoff with a Seagull. <laughs> Sir, 
I had to laugh on Saturday, August the 3rd, sitting outside a cafe near the bus depot in Kidderminster. The pesky seagulls are the same as in Angel Place, but didn't bank on being attacked. The lady who I was with had just had a small ham sandwich and a coffee. As soon as she put down her sandwich back on the plate, down came a seagull. As its feet touched our table, I snatched at its neck, but missed by centimetres. It jumped down on the path and squawked to me as if I'd done something dreadfully wrong. <laughs> as I stood up to kick this ugly, thieving object, it took flight, possibly to steal from somebody else. I told the lady, I've already killed William Worcester, and I'd do the same again if attacked. Our council said they are thinking of culling seagulls, as they are too many, but we all know this is just a myth and a go to reassure the public. But thinking about it, take the council 12 months, probably. God help me. <laughs> what I could do with a 12 ball. <laughs> Okay. My letter is from Tracy Rochelle of Worcester. Sir, you're invited to the Great Worcester Cake Off on August the 10th, the junior competition, and August the 17th for the adults competition. As part of the Worcester Festival, we're holding a cake decorating competition at Cookmate in Broad Street, Worcester. We're inviting locals to come with their pre-decorated cakes and put them on display and the public will vote for their favourite. As long as the uh, seagulls keep away, that'll be okay, won't it? <laughs> we have gold, silver and bronze medals for the juniors and an engraved trophy for the adults. We'd love to be included in your newspaper. Come along and join in the fun. The Worcester News could enter their own cake. We have the cricket ground entering and Boston Tea Party are going to be giving out free cake samples. Mine is the Fair Point article from last Friday, the August the 2nd. Um, it starts looking at the closure of a department store in Malvern, but then goes on to talk about such situations and comment on their um, significance. So it's the closure of a department store points out high street problems. The news that one of the oldest shops in Malvern, Bray's department store, is closing its doors after more than a century of trade is sad but hardly surprising. There was a time when any town of Malvern's size or bigger would have had its own similar emporium, independent, family-owned. But time has moved on. Chain stores started to dominate the nation's high streets decades ago. And since then, there has been the rise of the edge-of-town retail park and more recently the devastating effect of online shopping. So what can be done to preserve the traditional town centre? Many people are attached to such a, uh, an ideal with its vision of a patchwork of small local shops. The artisan baker, the butcher, the greengrocer and so on. But the fact must be faced that millions of people have, over the years, voted with their feet and their wallets. Those out-of-town estates and now the internet retailers were and are supplying what the people wanted and still want, a wide variety of goods delivered in the most convenient manner available. So possibly the question to ask is, should we be trying to preserve the traditional town centre? After all, the public has shown us what it wants. It's notable that recent business openings in the centre of Malvern induce enterprises like barbers, beauticians and nail bars, all of which offer services that can't be delivered electronically, but only in person. 
the large numbers of estate agents' offices in the town centre could also be quite easily explained. Houses are for almost everyone the single most expensive thing they will ever buy. So they'll want the comfort of dealing with a long-established business with reassuring bricks-and-mortar premises instead of some shadowy internet entity. The town centres of today are different from the town centres of the 1950s, just as they were different from the town centres of the 1890s. But people won't lose their urge for sociability, and there will always be the demand for places to get together Commercial enterprises will still be set up to provide convivial places for people to get together. This may point the directions of the future of our high streets. People may be shopping alone in front of their screens, but they will still want to get together afterwards. I have a letter here um, from Wendy Hans, um, unsurprised by treatment. Sir... I read an interesting article in the magazine The Week in which the writer in Moscow asks whether Navalny was poisoned. Russian opposition leader Alexei Navalny has suffered what officials described as a severe allergic reaction in the Moscow jail. Navalny, who is serving a 30-day term for organising an anti-government protest last weekend, was taken to hospital with rashes on his upper body and swelling on his face. His own doctor has said that she is certain that he was poisoned and that this week he wrote on his blog that he's never suffered from an allergy before. She may be right. In one of the biggest crackdowns in years, police arrested nearly 1,400 people during last Saturday's demonstration against the exclusion of high-profile opposition candidates from local elections. I do not suppose I'm alone in being surprised by this heartless treatment of those who question what the state wants. Okay, my letters from Max Burgess of Mulvern. Sir, I was amazed to read MP's view, Harriet Baldwin, Worcester News, August the 1st, when she said the government wanted to protect much-loved British wildlife. They have been slaughtering thousands of badgers every year with no improvement of TB in cattle and no evidence that the badgers are to blame. After all, it's called bovine TB. It is likely the cattle have infected the badgers. With the stress that dairy cows go through, having their calves taken from them at a day old and getting them to produce higher and higher yields of milk, it's no wonder they get TB. There always seems to be some species of our wildlife being culled. It doesn't seem as if they are much loved to me. And my last letter is from Richard Udall, councillor for the city and the county. In recent days, I've been asked if my support for ice cream is a joke. Short answer, no, it is not. However, I feel I may need to justify it a bit more. I have been Labour spokesperson for rural affairs for 10 years. One of the biggest concerns in the rural economy is the future of our dairy industry. However, one area is showing growth, the ice cream market, worth over £1 billion every year to the British economy. Approximately 4,000 people are employed in the UK making the product, and that doesn't include people selling and distributing ice cream. Sales are growing every year at about 3.4%. The industry has saved many dairy farmers from ruin. New flavours and products are becoming available, including vegan ice cream, low-fat frozen yoghurt and savoury ice cream. It used to be a summer-only product, not anymore. 
Sales of ice cream in December are now starting to match the peak summer months. I want Worcester to be part of this growing industry. It attracts people, tourists and investment. It creates jobs, economic growth and helps a struggling farming industry. It's estimated that every pound spent in development and promotion of ice cream earns at least an extra three pounds to the local economy. So, I defend my decision to call for a Worcester ice cream festival. Not because it's a joke or a silly idea, but because it will be good for industry, good for jobs, good for economic growth and good for tourism. I believe it would also be good fun. It's clearly not the only issue or the only thing I care about, far from it. We have many issues and concerns I'm working on. However, if I can help to create jobs and bring income to the city by supporting a quality product, I will do so. And the editorial comment supports Councillor Udall and says, As the city's popular food festival has proved, there's a market to celebrate and enjoy culinary delights. It doesn't all have to be doom and gloom, and we're licking our lips at the prospect of Councillor Udall's proposal coming to fruition. And now some articles from this last week's Worcester News. So I'll start off with the Mayor's column, Councillor Allah Ditter. Some you win, some you lose. And if someone hoped they'd be a winner by wearing something knitted by the Mayor of Worcester, sorry folks. I tried knitting for the first time ever and failed discovering my complete inability to put even two stitches together on a visit to Waterhoot Yarn Shop and Tea Room at 56 Lowesmore. Luckily, there are some very skilled knitters around, and here's where they meet. Later the same day, I enjoyed fascinating chats with more skilled and inspirational heroes and heroines at Aspie, the social health, self-help and motivation group for adults with Asperger's syndrome. When I was invited to the great national steeplechase in Worcester, visions of racehorses thundering through the streets were pleasantly dashed when it was revealed that the, ch the event was actually a bid by Churches Conservation Trust's chief, Peter Ayers, to visit 50 churches in as many hours. That tied in nicely with an opportunity to see the impressive ongoing works at St Swithin's Church, which is being transformed into an arts and cultural space in the heart of our city. Showing visitors around our Guildhall is something I always enjoy, more so than ever when fuelled by the sheer joy of 30 female students and their translators from Tokyo, all of them enchanting in national costume. I tried to say welcome, yokoso, in Japanese 30 times and it came out different every time. <laughs> Talking of colour and spectacle, the opening of the Three Choirs Festival never ceases to thrill and amaze. This year is Gloucester's turn. We three mayors and our civic attendants were resplendent and so proud to represent our respective cities. It was a pleasure to meet again Claire Jackson of Platform Housing to hear about the encouraging future of housing in the city. The organisation has already invested £1 million in Worcester and I hear there's more to come. And then, with Ramadan safely behind us, I enjoyed a lively session to celebrate Eid 
and the end of the fasting season with Ruth Haywood's ladies at Horizon Community Centre. With so much going on, is it any wonder I love this sister so much, this city so much? This is a new story entitled New Sport Arena Plan. Plans for an innovative new cricket centre at the University of Worcester have been revealed. Located along the University of Worcester Arena on Hilton Road, the International Inclusive Cricket Centre will provide a new home for elite grassroots and recreational players. Worcestershire County Cricket Board hopes 8,000 users will benefit from the centre every year, many of them young children, disabled athletes, women's squads and students. Mick Donovan, the university's Deputy Pro-Vice-Chancellor, said... The university is proud to have created the UK's first indoor sports venue specifically designed to include wheelchair athletes in the University of Worcester Arena, which has been a huge success. We are delighted to now build on our commitment to providing outstanding inclusive sports and educational facilities through the creation of the International Inclusive Cricket Centre, which I'm sure will inspire generations to come, change perceptions on inclusion and unleash the potential cricket has to offer. The university has appointed David Morley Architects, whose previous projects include the Indoor Centre at Laws in London, Edgebarson Cricket Centre in Birmingham, and the National Cricket Academy at Loughborough. The estimated £8 million cost of a new centre will enable the provision of extensive indoor net practice facilities for cricket at all levels, including all branches of disability cricket, as well as changing facilities, specialist sports science facilities and teaching areas. Andy Mitem partner of David Morley Architect said we are incredibly proud to have been invited to work with the University of Worcester and continue our work with the ECB to design these facilities. The building will set new benchmarks for our inclusive environments. Once plans are complete they will be submitted to Worcester City Council for approval. Worcestershire Cricket Board is an enthusiastic partner in the development which the board hopes will become an all-weather home for youth, grassroots and uh, club cricket in the county. The centre will also provide a unique new training facility, a cricket ball throwaway from Worcestershire County Cricket Club, which is currently the only first-class county cricket camp without a training facility on site. The son of a murdered woman has been jailed for stealing thousands of pounds worth of Jaguar Land Rover car parts from his workplace to sell on to clear a drugs debt. Sheldon Heppel, son of murdered Melanie Clark, who was stabbed to death by her husband, was jailed for eight months for stealing parts from JLR Parts UK in Stoke Prior near Bromsgrove when he appeared at Worcester Crown Court yesterday. The 24-year-old of Bromsgrove, who worked in a position of trust in the warehouse, stole the parts between February the 1st and May the 28th this year and helped himself to cash from the till. Mrs Clark was murdered by her husband David, Heppel's stepfather, who was jailed for 15 years last July. The court heard the items were valued at £7,708, but with a sale price of £9,494, as they sold for more than the company paid for them. On one calculation, the company claimed the loss was more than £30,000. Michael Connery, prosecuting, said the defendant had been unable to sell two multi-entertainment screens, one recovered from his home address and the other from a BMW parked outside. He became involved in these debts to repair drugs debt of £800. Unfortunately, he lost his mother in the most violent of circumstances, said Mr Connery. The court heard he put the stolen items in big bags 
so they appeared to be rubbish and a van was used to take them away. The thefts took place on three occasions. Lee Egan, defending, said he expresses remorse and shame about what he has done. Mr Egan also said after the thefts were discovered, Hepper was picked up and taken against his will to Bournemouth and his telephone taken from him. Hepper was a previous good character and entered a guilty plea at an early stage. Mr Egan also argued there was a realistic prospect of rehabilitation and mitigation in the tragic circumstances of his mother's death. Judge Nicholas Cartwright said, The company was very supportive of you when your mother was tragically killed. They were prepared to allow you four months off paid leave. He told Heppel he had been entrusted with a key and that the thefts were a gross breach of the trust they placed in you. The second and third occasions he stole from the company were stealing to order to pay off a drugs debt. The judge said it was an irony that the company would have helped him with that debt had he asked for it, but told Heppel, you didn't ask, you helped yourself to their property. A lot of people lose loved ones in tragic circumstances without going on to run up a drugs debt, he said. The judge said there was a need for a deterrent sentence, jailing him for eight months. My next article is headed Guide for Male Abuse Victims. An ex-support worker says services for male victims of domestic abuse have a long way to go as he launches a new guide. Lee Marks worked as the male support coordinator for Worcestershire around two and a half years ago. Mr Marks said, I was the only person who was supporting men. Since leaving, a lot of people have contacted me. If you look at Worcestershire, the male domestic abuse service is still one man. He's excellent, and I wouldn't say anything bad about him. But if you compare it to the female service, the difference in staffing levels is astronomical. Mr Marks has published a support guide for male victims, looking at behaviours of a female perpetrator, advice on how to stay safe, a look at the legal options and advice around healthy relationships to assist in moving forward. Mr Marks from Evesham said, It was the BBC documentary Abused by My Girlfriend. On the back of that, people contacted me and said, This is something we need to get out there. The book is aimed at getting men to recognise abuse for what it is and to get people thinking about the different types of abuse men will suffer, looking at the options legally and the different agencies that can help them come to terms with it. It's opened a lot of doors in terms of people that it has helped. I was contacted by an organisation in Liverpool. They have been using my book as a reference to where they can send men to work with them. I have met with them in the past week. It has gone to a national level, which is just amazing. Mr Mark said, We are finding that the use of children when it comes to male victims is quite prevalent. There are cases where men have committed suicide because they couldn't deal with the alienation from their children when coming out of an abusive relationship. Mr Marks does not want not profit from book sales. The money goes towards his travelling to give talks and helping spread information about the issue. Mr Marks' book, Break the Silence, is available from Amazon. And this story is called Begging Law is Outdated. 
Homeless Forum has said the Vagrancy Act has passed its sell-by date after a man was arrested for begging and then let off by the courts. Robin Downwood was taken into custody after spot being spotted sitting in two begging hotspots in the city centre before being granted an absolute discharge by magistrate. The 40-year-old, who is temporarily housed in the travel lodge in Cathedral Square, said he was just trying to get food and was not actively begging but allowing people to voluntarily give him money. Speaking on behalf of the Worcester Cares, Vulnerable People and Homeless Forum, Jonathan Sutton said, In the vast majority of cases, the criminalisation of people through the courts is not the answer. But, admitted, with all the services available to rough sleepers in the city, there should be no good reason why a person has to resort to begging. Mr Sutton, Chief Executive of St Paul's Hostel, said, It is the case when it becomes clear that the approach of the encouragement and offer of help and support is failing to engage the person, then the police need to trigger a more coercive approach. However, he accepted the police can only use the legislation and powers given by them, by the government, meaning often using the outdated Vagrancy Act. Though he said the public order space protection can provide an alternative to the Act, but requires agreement by the local elected politicians. He went on to say, The public may not know the state benefits can be obtained by homeless people, for example through Max Day Centre, and that there is an abundance of soup kitchens in the city so people will not go hungry. Downward accepted a charge of begging in a public place when appearing at Worcester Magistrates Court on Thursday in relation to the incident on July the 12th. Prosecutor Shavquat Riaz says the defendant was spotted by officers at 9.30am in Church Street, sat on the floor in an area well known for beggars and was told to move along. At 11.30am he was spotted again, this time sitting in Windsor Row, another hotspot, and was arrested. Mr Sutton said there are increasing numbers of beggars and some aggressive, many with significant addictions, and we need to engage them with our services. A city resident who stayed up until the early hours watching a new footbridge being installed has said it's a great addition for Worcester. Martin Lewis climbed up a stepladder in his back garden to film the Broom Hallway footbridge being put in place in the early hours of Sunday. The bridge over the A4440 Crookborough Way is for pedestrians, mobility scooters, bikes and those on horseback and will open once it has been connected to surrounding footpaths. When the bridge is operational, it will provide a link between the communities of St Peter's and Norton, as well as helping to connect the city centre and the new Worcester Parkway station. My garden looks straight over where the bridge was placed, said Mr Lewis of Deer Avenue. I set my alarm for half twelve in the morning and climbed up a stepladder in the garden so I could see over the fence. It was quite an event. I watched until the bridge was put in place at about half past two. He went on to say, the bridge is great for us, we've been looking forward to it because it opens up a lot of walks. The road underneath was closed both ways while the work was carried out, finishing eight hours ahead of schedule. The installation had been expected to take most of Sunday, but was finished early in the morning, allowing the road to be reopened at 11am. The full Southern Link Road project, of which the footbridge is just part, is expected to be fully completed in 2021, with the duelling of the road between Junction 7 of the M5 and Poet Roundabout. The County Council approved an extra £7 million for three bridges across the A4440 in November last year. The Link Road is one of the county's busiest, accessed by over 30,000 cars each weekday. It provides an important link between the M5 South and West 
Worcester, Great Malvern, the wider Malvern Hills district, Ledbury, Upton and Herefordshire. It is also an important bypass to the city centre, providing one of only two road crossings of the River Severn in the city. The scheme is being undertaken in phases, with initial £54.5 million funding from the Department for Transport in November 2017. My next article is about a project which I think perhaps was inspired by the Poppies installation at the Tower of London last year. And it's headed, Dragonflies Come to City. A hospice is creating a colourful memorial garden in Worcester this month. On Saturday, August the 10th, more than a thousand handmade dragonflies will be planted on the lawns around the base of St Andrew's Spire in Deansway by St Richard's Hospice staff and volunteers. The display follows on from the success of the charity's previous celebration garden of, of forget-me-nots and snowdrops. People are being encouraged to celebrate someone or something special with one of the beautiful dragonflies in the display, which they can later take home as a keepsake or a gift. The dragonflies are individually made by the British Ironworks Centre in Oswestry, uniquely commissioned for St Richard's Hospice. The flowers will be installed on August the 10th and will be on display until Monday, August the 26th. Contributions to help create this installation will help fund St Richard's care of patients, their loved ones and the bereaved in Worcestershire. Event organiser Jane Sargent said, The dragonflies will create a memorable and stunning garden which will be an ideal focal point for celebration and reflection. The forget-me-nots and snowdrops in our previous two celebration gardens were incredibly popular and ended up in homes and gardens in Worcestershire and around the world. We're hoping that people will be just as keen to help us create this beautiful garden of dragonflies this summer. Dragonflies hold a special place in the hearts of St Richard's families. In almost every part of the world, the dragonfly symbolises change and the understanding of the deeper meaning of life. St Richard's runs a dragonfly group to help bereaved children and young people together with their parent or carer through professional support and offers an opportunity to share their experiences with others in a similar situation. Donors will be invited to pick a flower from the garden on Bank Holiday Monday, August the 26th, to collect from the hospice or via post after the installation is dismantled. To secure a dragonfly, please visit strichards.org.uk oblique celebration hyphen garden or call the fundraising team on 01905 763 963. The celebration garden is sponsored by Western Power Distribution and supported by Worcester City Council. Well, this is a story entitled Police Seize Motorbikes. Police have warned motorcyclists about riding off-road bikes on footpaths after officers confiscated a number of vehicles. Police were alerted to the motorcyclists riding along the footpaths in Warden Villages on Thursday, August the 1st. 
Several officers from the Warnden, Gorsal and Nullery Safer Neighbourhood teams gathered and found a group of youths on the footpath in the new Worcester 6 Business Park. Despite officers making several attempts to persuade the riders to stop, they ignored them and attempted to flee. But the officers managed to stop two of the riders, both of whom were under 16, and their motorcycles were seized. They are also being investigated for various driving offences as a result. Officers have started recording motorcyclists as they flee on their body-worn cameras to catch offenders. P.C. Allen Figueredo, over the last few months there have been an increase of off-road motorcyclists being ridden on the footpaths and roads in and around Warnden villages, Worcestershire Royal Hospital and the Woodland at County Hall. A majority of the reports state that the riders are not wearing any helmets or any other protective clothing. Each time we have attended the reports of the motorcyclists have either ridden <coughs> off or left the area. We have, however, continued to build an intelligence picture as to the route being taken, who is riding the bikes and where they are congregating. A majority of the reports state that the riders are not wearing any helmets or any other protective clothing. Each time we have attended the reports, the motorcyclists have either ridden off or left the area. We have, however, continued to build an intelligence picture as to the routes being taken, who is riding the bikes and where they are congregating. We have also been recording the motorcyclists as they flee on our body-worn cameras for use in any future cases when they are caught. PC Figueredo said, We do take this type of incident seriously as there is a risk of harm to pedestrians by the riders of these motorcyclists being ridden on the footpaths. There is also a risk to the riders themselves due to the lack of protective equipment and also the fact that the motorcyclists are often not roadworthy. I would like to remind the users of these motorcycles that we will continue to patrol and take every opportunity to prosecute these, those found committing these offences. We will also seize your motorcycle which will incur financial cost to the owners. I would like to thank the residents who continually report this behaviour to the police. Okay. Um, a fascinating story of a loyalist soldier. Not many people in adult life can say they hid up a tree with a king, but that's just one of several claims to fame of William Carlos. He was the royalist cavalry officer who was among the most colourful figures of the English Civil War. In a gallant attempt to hold off parliamentarian forces at the Battle of Worcester in 1651, Carlos led several charges down High Street in Sidbury, which allowed Charles II to flee the city. The pair met up again at the next day at Boscobel House in Shropshire, where Carlos suggested to the king he hide in a giant oak tree in the grounds. The subterfuge was successful and is celebrated every year by Oak Apple Day on May the 29th. After the war, Carlos and his family came to live in Hallow near Worcester, where his wife died and was buried in the churchyard. His remarkable life and times are to be the subject of a talk in Worcester Commandery on Thursday, August the 15th. The talk by Birmingham-based author Elaine Joyce will be entitled The Hero of the Boscobel Oak Tree. The event is being organised by the Battle of Worcester Society. Chairman Richard Shaw said, The actions of William Curless played a vital role in the King's escape during the battle. Curless claimed to have seen the last man slain, and it was only when he was sure Charles II had escaped that he left the battlefield. Callus originated from uh, Staffordshire, but knew the area around Boscobel House well. He suggested to the king that the house was unsafe and recommended they hide in a large pollarded oak tree in the surrounding woodlands. 
The king and careless took some food and drink into the tree and were relieved when parliamentarian soldiers searched the woodland intensively but failed to detect them. Charles, who was exhausted, slept in the tree for some of the time, only being prevented from falling out by Careless's support. He spent the night hiding in one of Boscobel's priest holes, Careless in another. The following day, Careless killed and butchered a sheep with his dagger and the mutton was afterwards cooked by the king himself. However, being too well known locally and not wishing to draw attention to the disguised Charles, Careless parted from the king latter the same day. I think that's supposed to be later the same day. Careless had been a cavalryman most of his life and fought for Charles's father, Charles I, at the Battle of Marston Moor in July 1644. Following the Battle of Worcester, he too fled to France and returned to England with Charles II in 1616. Callus was made a gentleman of the Privy Chamber in 1666 and in the 1680s came to live at Hallow where his wife died and is buried. Callus returned to London and died in 1689. The talk by Elaine Joyce, who has just published a book about William Callus called Nine Witnesses for the Colonel, King Charles I's Most Faithful Servant, will start at 7pm on August the 15th. Tickets are £7 for adults, £5 for Battle of Worcester Society members and £3 for students. They are obtainable from the battleofworcestersociety.org.uk website, the commandery shop, the tourist information office at the Guildhall Worcester, the Worcester Festival box office at Huntington Hall Worcester or on the door on the night. The next article is headed Thief Pleads for Support. A thief who spat at a police officer and smeared faeces and blood on the walls of his cell has pleaded for more support as he comes to terms with the suicide of his brother. Oliver Fiernal told magistrates today he has been crying out for help but has been let down by the likes of of addiction charity Swanswell and the probation service finding comfort solely from drink. The 27-year-old also cares full-time for his mum, who has a life-limiting illness, but admitted, the only time I have to myself is on the bottle. Having been arrested on July the 14th for stealing alcohol worth £12.70 from a spa shop, Fiennell spat at PC Stephen Hemmings as he was brought into Worcester Police Station and then committed the dirty protest. Mark Sheward, defending, said his client has not had the best time in recent years, having been diagnosed with PTSD following the death of his brother. The solicitor said Fiennell has been given medication in the past, but it did not really help, so he uses alcohol to block out the bad thoughts he has. It was not a sophisticated theft, continued Mr Sheward, who explained his client had no money on the day in question. He was always going to be seen and was apprehended. The defendant told him officers weren't particularly nice when taking him to the station and, as a consequence, he acted out. The court heard Fiennell, Claire cares for his mum, at her home in Meadow Droitwich, spending £400 of his £600 monthly universal credit payments towards running the property. There's a good side to this young man. He is trying his best, said Mr Sheward. 
The defendant is currently under post-sentencing supervision for a different offence, but his solicitor said he is not really seeking help and is trying to work through his difficulties alone, but is in a very dark place. Mr Sheward said he hopes Fiennal comes to realise the services he has criticised are there to help him, not punish him. Chair of the bench, Vicky Corton, gave Fiennal an eight-week prison term, suspended for 12 months for the assault and fined for the theft and damage. He was ordered to pay £544 in fines, costs and compensation. Ms Corton said she understood the immense impact of suicide and encouraged him to seek out bereavement support. And this is a, a story entitled Four Festivals Set for City. Four festivals are set to take place next year as part of a multi-million pound project to make the city's railway arches a gateway cultural destination as the council looks as to whether it celebrates ice cream on the banks of the River Severn. The four festivals, which are part of a £4.5 million project to open at Worcester's railway arches from Fourgate Street to the Hive and the rest of the riverside, will kick off with several light-based art installations as part of a festival of light in January next year. The Railway Arches project will transform eight of the city's railway arches into modern spaces for creative industries and make the area a cultural destination for the city and tourists. The city has handed a £3 million boost from the Department for Digital, Culture, Media and Sports Cultural Development Fund, which is managed by the Arts Council England, towards the project. The festivals will be part of the Worcester Cultural Partnership, which is made up of Seven Arts, Worcester City Council, the University of Worcester, the Arch Company and Worcestershire County Council. The city could also get things... The city would also get its first ice cream festival following the suggestion by councillors. Councillor Richard Udall says an ice cream festival would work tremendously well in Worcester and the city's recently green flag awarded Riverside Park would be the perfect venue. Worcester needs an ice cream festival. We need to promote this great natural product which is developed all around the country and the Riverside would be a great venue, he said, at the Council's Environment Committee last week. We could celebrate a local product, celebrate a local business and draw a lot of people into the city. The Council said it will report back to the councillors in October. Seven Arts, the county's leading arts and music education charity, appointed David Edmonds as its festival's director to organise the festivals and his team will be based at the Arches when the refurbishment is finished. Mr Edmonds, who has worked for the Royal Shakespeare Company, said, It feels like a really exciting time for Worcester in terms of culture and I've been struck by the level of ambition shown by all those I've encountered so far. I'm looking forward to working with the sector within the city in tandem with bringing the very best work from all over the world to Worcester. It's going to be an exciting couple of years and hopefully the stars of Worcester becoming synonymous with the word festival. Right, I've got tips on family days out. With the school summer holidays in full swing, parents in Worcestershire are looking for places to take the kids locally without breaking the bank. So we asked our readers for their recommendations for free and cheap activities. The May the Toys Be With You exhibition at Worcester City Art Gallery and Museum in Fourgate Street was a popular suggestion. Described as an exhibition of vintage Star Wars toys and original cinema posters, it's free and runs until Saturday, September the 14th from 10.30am to 4.30pm. Also free at the museum on the first Tuesday, August 6th is the next of each month, so... 
okay? From 11am till 3pm, the Victorian Stewards Chemist Shop opens for visitors to take a peek inside and hear the fascinating story of how it came from Worcester's High Street. Another popular free activity is the Splash Pad Water Play Area in Gallivelt Park, Worcester. It's listed as being open from 11am to 6pm during the summer holidays, but these hours change depending on the weather. Of course, there are other parks in and around the city which are free to enter and great in the summer, including Worcester Woods, Fort Royal, Diglis and Cripplegate. Climbing the tower at Worcester Cathedral to see the stunning views was also recommended. This energetic activity is free for children under 16, but there is a £5 admission fee for adults. The tower opens at 11am on weekday and Saturdays, with the last entry at 4.30pm. On a Sunday, it's 12.30 till 3. A simple walk along the River Severn and feeding the ducks and swans was also recommended, as was the Knapp and Paper Mill Nature Reserve near Alfric, which is open from dawn to dusk and described as a beautiful reserve consisting of Old Valley Meadows, Woodland and Orchard. A National Trust membership was also recommended, as the organisation runs many attractions in Worcestershire. A family membership for two adults and up to ten children is £126 a year, or £10.50 a month, or £78, £6.50 for a single adult and up to ten kids. Among the Trust's venues in the county are Croom, Greyfriars House and Hanbury Hall. Opening times and entry prices without membership vary at each venue. Top Barn Farm Park in Holt Heath is also a fun, fun family day out with free admission. Open from 10am to 5pm Monday to Saturday and 10am to 4pm on Sunday. Next, a bit of the feel-good factor. Bosch helps out cancer charity. Staff from a Worcester business have raised more than £30,000 for a cancer charity. Over the last 12 months, employees at Worcester Bosch have raised £33,100 for leading men's health charity Prostate Cancer UK. Staff at Worcester Bosch have been given, giving donations and taking part in fundraising events including the London Half Marathon and the Big Half, in order to raise funds to help stop prostate cancer being a killer. The money raised will help Prostate Cancer UK fund vital research into better diagnosis, treatment, prevention and support for men and their families facing a prostate cancer diagnosis. Tamarin Ward, head of corporate partnerships at Prostate Cancer UK, said, We are incredibly grateful to Worcester Bosch for choosing to raise such an amazing amount of money for Prostate Cancer UK. We've been really impressed by the dedication and commitment from employees to get involved and support us. Prostate cancer is currently the most common cancer in men and the third biggest cancer killer in the UK. Our aim is to change this through, through groundbreaking research, groundbreaking research and making as many people as possible aware of the risks. We thank the team at Worcester Bosch for helping us to do this and in turn joining us in the fight against prostate cancer. Andy Garbett, Worcester Bosch marketing manager, said... 
Prostate Cancer UK is a charity that is close to the hearts of many of us at Worcester Bosch and people from across the whole company were keen to get involved in a wide range of fundraising activity throughout the year. We hope our donation will help support important research into better treatment and awareness of the disease as well as the wide range of essential services offered by the charity. To find out more about the Men's Health Charity and how you can support it, visit https colon double oblique prostatecanceruk.org oblique dot. More than 11,500 men die from prostate cancer in the UK each year, which works out as one man every 45 minutes. It is the most common cancer in men, with 400,000 living with and after the disease in the UK. One in eight men in the UK will be diagnosed with prostate cancer. These stats are one in four for black men. Men over 50 black men and men with a family history of prostate cancer all face a higher than average risk of the disease. Well here we have a story entitled A Decade's Hard Work. A man who has volunteered for a local hospice for the last decade has been honoured with a prestigious medal. Colin McCourt, who lives in Droitwich, was nominated by St Richard's Hospice after volunteering for 10 years. He was given the badge of Order of Mercy, receiving it at a special ceremony held at the Mansion House in London. The award celebrates those who have spent more than seven years making a difference to the lives of those in need. Only 50 medals are awarded to volunteers from around the country each year. Mr McCourt started volunteering for St Richard's in 2007 and has carried out roles including driving patients as well as supporting them in the community with companionship. In 2008, he joined a small group of chaplaincy volunteers offering spiritual care to patients and their loved ones. Mr McCourt said, I most humbly accept this honour and thank you for all those who were involved in this decision. The Right Honourable, the Lord Lingfield, President of the League of Mercy, presented the award and said, Mr McCourt has done extraordinary work for those most in need. He is a marvellous example of somebody whose long-standing and voluntary dedication to the service and welfare of others is noteworthy and remarkable, and we are delighted to be able to make this well-deserved award to him. Jean Patel, Chief Executive of St Richard's Hospice, said, We are delighted and honoured that Colum has received this recognition from the League of Mercy Foundation. The award really celebrates the love and support he has given as a volunteer over many years to patients, their loved ones, staff and volunteers. Members of the Labour Party gathered in Worcester to call for universal credit to be stopped. A survey was published on August the 1st to coincide with the National Day of Action Against Universal Credit. As part of the activities, the Worcestershire Branch Trade Union Unite held a stall and leaf leafleting session in Cranham Shopping Centre, Warndham. Members campaigned for an end to the new benefits system and for it to be replaced with a social security system similar to the previous one. Councillor Lynn Denham said, We want to change the culture of the social security system from one that demonises people not in work to one that is supportive. The purpose of the street store was to highlight that universal credit is causing holiday hunger and to invite people to sign a petition.
As councillors, we are contacted by people pushed into universal credit who are struggling with paying their rent, bills and feeding their children because they don't get enough money to cover everything, even though many are working. Our social security system is supposed to be a safety net for when people fall on hard times. Universal Credit rolls six benefits, including income support, job seekers allowance and housing benefit, into one monthly payment. It has been rolled out across the UK so that anyone making a new claim or anyone declaring a change in circumstances will receive Universal Credit rather than one of the old benefits. Mike Cross from Worcester Trades Union Council said, We had good support and we heard a number of sad stories from people who have been moved over to Universal Credit. A government spokesman said, This is a self-selecting survey made up of 0.05% of the total number of households supported by Universal Credit. Universal Credit is now rolled out to every job centre in the UK and more than 2 million people are receiving support. Universal Credit is simpler than the old system, gives more personalised support and helps people back into work quicker. My next article is headed City Fake Solicitor Leaves GP Practice. A data protection officer who had falsely claimed to be a solicitor has left another city medical practice. Paul Couldry was hired by multiple surgeries, including in Worcester, on the recommendation of Southwest Healthcare, GP Federation for all 32 practices across South Worcestershire. In October last year, the Worcester News revealed the Solicitor's Regulation Authority had warned Mr Cauldry to take remedial steps or he could face two years in prison. On a number of occasions, including on his personal blog and in emails, he had referred to himself as a qualified solicitor, though, according to SRA, he has since admitted he has no such qualifications. Mr Cauldry confirmed this week he no longer offers his, ser- offers his services to Seven Valley Medical Practice, including Hennick Holt Surgery, though would not reveal why and said he is still DPO for other Worcestershire practices. Tony Dipple, business manager of Elbury Moor Medical Centre, confirmed earlier this year that Mr Cauldry had been DPO for the centre for a few months, but no longer was. Southwest Healthcare sent out literature to surgeries, which included a recommendation to hire Mr Cauldry, Managing Director for PCIG Limited for £300 a year as DPO, describing him as qualified solicitor. In response to a Freedom of Information request, Horsfield and St Martin's Gate Surgeries and Barbourne Health Centre, all in Worcester, said they believed only minimal due diligence was required before hiring him. Those three surgeries sent back the same response, which said... We consider that a contract value of less than £500 requires minimal due diligence. NHS England ruled in January that Seven Valley had breached its data protection obligation after posting personal information about former patient Andrew Brown on whattotheyknow.com as part of an FOI response. The apparent breach took place the previous year, but it is unclear when Mr Cauldry took up his post. 
Southwest Healthcare did not wish to comment further and Severn Valley was unavailable. Well, this story is entitled Patient Makes a Splash for Cash. A cardiac patient has completed the British Heart Foundation's peer-to-peer -peer sunset swim to raise funds for British Heart Foundation. Melanie Nash, 48, completed the challenge just six months after she had a cardiac procedure at Worcestershire Royal Hospital, known as an atrial fibrillation cryotherapy ablation, a treatment that freezes pulmonary veins. She was accompanied by her swim by her sister, Sam. The peer-to-peer -peer sunset swim involved a 1.4 miles open water swim from Bournemouth Pier to Boscombe Pier. The event took place on July 13th and Melanie completed the gruelling challenge in 52 minutes. Two years ago, Melanie was diagnosed with a persistent atrial fibrillation, an irregular heart rhythm with the upper chambers of the heart. The condition meant she became extremely fatigued and struggled with daily tasks like climbing a flight of stairs. After her procedure, Melanie has taken up swimming again in order to improve her fitness and she says she has fallen in love with it and was delighted to complete the peer-to-peer -peer sunset swim. Melanie said, I did it. I can't quite believe it. I had a bit of a wobble at the start, just started feeling a bit panicky, but with the support of my sister, I pushed on through and we really nailed it. Since my procedure, I feel like a new woman, both physically and mentally. I just wanted to give something back to say thank you to everyone involved with my care, and they've been amazing. Melanie has exceeded her initial fundraising target of £200, raising more than £700 for British Heart Foundation. Arrhythmia nurse specialist Nikki Brewster said, We are so pleased that Melanie has made a full recovery and it's great to see that she is now able to enjoy a happy and healthy lifestyle. We are also impressed with her taking to the peer-to-peer -peer challenge and the fantastic amount she has raised. Now we've reached the end of this recorded edition. Thank you to Moira, Julian and Barry for reading and recording. We hope you've enjoyed listening and that you'll come back for more next week. So we'll say our goodbyes. Remember that the obituaries will follow the music. Best wishes from me, Evelyn, and from all the team. Goodbye. Bye. Goodbye. Now the obituaries. Nora Bourne of Pershaw. Passed away peacefully on July the 26th, 2019, aged 95 years. Funeral service at Worcester Crematorium on Monday, August the 12th at 1pm. Family flowers only, please. Richard Giblet Dick. Sadly passed away in St Richard's Hospice on July the 17th, 2019. A funeral service will be held at Worcester Crematorium on Monday, August the 12th at 3.15pm. No black, please, but please wear a splash of blue. Family flowers only. Denise Angela McLeod, née Baker, passed away peacefully at home on July the 29th following a long illness. The funeral service has already taken place. Leonard Carless, Len, passed away peacefully on July the 29th, 2019, aged 93 years. Funeral service at Worcester Crematorium on Thursday, August the 15th at 12.15pm. Family flowers only, please. Roger Derrett. 
passed away peacefully on August the 1st, 2019, aged 81 years. Funeral service to be held at St. Dennis Church, 7 Stoke, on Friday the 16th of August at 2pm. Family flowers only. Roger Graham Evans of Whittington passed away peacefully on August the 3rd, 2019, aged 76 years. Funeral service at Pershaw Abbey on Wednesday, August the 14th at 2pm, followed by interment at Pershaw Cemetery. Flowers welcome. Frank Hayden of Noble House passed away peacefully on July the 12th, 2019, aged 102 years. The funeral service has already taken place. Nora Constance Laird, nay Horseman, sadly passed away at St Richard's Hospice on July the 25th, 2019, aged 70 years. The funeral service has already taken place. Royston Ernest Bullock passed away on July the 16th, 2019, aged 79 years. The funeral service has already taken place. Even Evelyn May Gilchrist, 29th of June 1925 to the 23rd of July 2019, Passed away peacefully in hospital after a short illness, aged 94. The funeral will take place at Worcester Crematorium on Friday, August the 16th at 12.15pm. Please feel free to wear bright colours, family flowers only please. Dennis Luxford, Den. Passed away on July the 23rd, 2019, aged 93 years. Funeral service at Worcester Crematorium on Monday, August the 12th at 10.45am. Family flowers only, please. Hazel Mary Spittle. It is with deep sadness that we announce the passing of Hazel. A simple cremation will be held on August the 14th, 12 noon, at the Vale Crematorium, Pershaw. Gillian Sutton of Holly Green, Upton on Seven, passed away on July the 24th. Private cremation followed by funeral on Sunday, August the 11th, 12 noon, at Ripple Church. Family flowers only.